This is the Realm of Agape Christian Church. We will be going to a verse of scripture at the beginning. We have to begin at the beginning right now in the part of the series we have arrived to. And uh, the Living Truth series is yet upon us. We are now in part three, what the Bible actually teaches on women. This is based on a book by Kevin Giles, a theologian in whom I agree with, thank God. So let's look at Genesis 1, verses 27 and 28 in the New Century Virgin Bible. It reads, so God created human beings in his image, in the image of God, he created them. He created them, male and female. God blessed them. He blessed them both. And said, have many children and grow in number. Fill the earth and be its master. Rule over the fish. Notice he's talking to both of them. Rule over the fish in the sea and over the birds in the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Question by God's Spirit. What is the historical and cultural context that God intended for us to understand about how men and women should respect each other. And is the historical and cultural constructs of male leadership to be comprehended as a freedom to, to uh, interpret domination and equality? Think about it. Is the subordination of women keeping y'all down? Is that a creation-given construct? The Bible chronicles the effects of that construct and reveals heaven's preferred alternative, if you will. So let us investigate this message, number one, for part three. And it is part one because it's, you know, too involved to bring in one sermon, but part one of what is complementarian theology. What is complementarian theology? So in this study, we will be using, instead of reinventing the wheel all the way, there's some reinvention as the Lord creates in me a new thing for this series. And no matter what, he gives me ahead of time to transcribe from his heart to the page what happens in the house at the given moment of the delivery is a different thing because things come in the house. Things and people both come in the house. People not only have pocketbooks, they have other baggage. Men don't just have wallets, they have other baggage too. We bring baggage to the house of the Lord. And you know, the Holy Ghost doesn't ignore that baggage, does he? No, then people will look at the man and woman of God who are people of faith, who are following, 
the tenets of what the Holy Ghost has for them to say to the house, how to address it, because he senses the baggage there. And then they look at you cross-eyed as though you're a bully, a villain, preaching on them, preaching on somebody. My God, instead of us getting our hearts ready, letting the Holy Ghost prepare the soil of our soul to receive the Word of God. We have our defenses up, and it's not all your fault. Men and women of God, so-called men and women of God, have come to the pulpit to, to use it as a venting post, to whip people, to, to use the house of God like a slave ship, like a slave community, and subject folk to cruel, harsh, and, and ungodly punishment. My God, they want to be overseers. They want to be whip crackers. My God. But God didn't call us to be whip crackers. I'm not cracking the whip. That's the Holy Ghost job. He will get you in line. It's called a rod of correction. And he will use it when he needs to, to get us in line. Doesn't mean he's going to beat us down to a pulp. No. And then you got to call 911 and whatnot. But he gets you in line. He wakes you up. He uses your own faculties. He lets you, in a sense, hang your own self, get your own self uh, in trouble, lay in your own rough bed until you get sick and tired of being sick and tired. That's when people repent, when they are sick and tired of being sick and tired. Sometimes they make a false repentance because they got caught and, you know, someone turned the light on. They didn't expect somebody to turn the light on. But now your whole business is out there. Oh, I, I, I'm going to make this repentance so that I can, you know, backpedal, make everything okay. My God, there's so many things that go on in the so-called house of God. I've seen people as a young man coming up, repenting because they got caught out there because after a few months, their belly went way out because something happened one night. And not always in, the, in some bed. It was on some seat of some car somewhere or on some blanket in, in some picnic in some park. My God, somewhere. Oh, my parents are not home. Come on, let's fill our wilds. My God. And then the evidence of said rendezvous showed forth. And then they had to come up to repent. I want to rededicate my life. I made a mistake. And then about 18 months later, they made another mistake, the same one. I said, well, they keep making that same mistake. I used to say as a young man in church. That's before I reached puberty, my God. I began to have more empathy for them as my hormones started kicking in. Thank God, thank God. I said, no wonder people pray the way they do. No wonder people are crying on Wednesday night in the prayer the way they are crying. Hallelujah. Anyhow, you live and you learn, my God. But throughout history, we see how men and women treat each other some of us aren't living and learning too quickly. We are yet holding on to the old landmarks that were falsely laid and premises that should not have been established, foundations that should not have been established, and um, making uh, deceitful construction happen. But at the onset of our ministry, God said that the the main thrust of our ministry here at the realm is to perform deconstruction. 
I've been doing it since a young man. I would be the one raising my hand when nobody else wanted to raise their hand in opposition. My own father used to tell me time and time again, don't contradict me. So I had the spirit of deconstruction for a long time. Didn't just happen, even though it's a new buzzword now. But amen, deconstruction has to go on. Jesus started it up. He, he told the devil, uh, her seed, Eve's seed, will, will crush your head. You're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. They, uh, they will be at enmity against you, my God. Thank God for that. So the devil built a faulty religion, and God deconstructed it right away. But how many go the way of sin, going the way of Cain? There was Cain, and there was Abel. Abel was able to praise him. Cain said, I cannot do that. Thank God. And he went on his, his way. And then he was the progenitor of some people who built uh, towers of Babel later on. My God. Nimrod was one of his seeds. And they, they keep that false faith going. Uh, and we have constructs today built on faulty faith. And uh, we want to look at the study put out by Kevin Giles, he wrote in opposition to complementarian theology. And uh, I thank God for this author. Uh, he's been writing against complementarian theology as it has been developed and refined over the last 50 years. God has enabled him to write against it. Uh, complementarian theology is a human construct generated to provide a way to read the Bible so that it consistently speaks of the creation-given subordination of you women and its counterpart that helps it out, the headship of us men. So I should be happy to preach on that if I want to go that route to keep y'all women down. But God spoke to me through a prophetess yet in utero, one minister, Siana. My daughter, firstborn. I had the pride of complementarian theology in my spirit more than I knew until the sonogram came and said, it's going to be a girl. I knew for certain it was going to be a boy. First going to be a boy. The firstborn, I was going down in my spirit preaching that. My God. And, and the sonogram said not so. I said, you sure? What's there in the middle right there? She said, no, that's the elbow. That's not, no. Thank God. Thought the nurse was seeing crooked. No, it, it's a girl. And her head, was, she looked like her face was smiling. Her head was bopping in there. She was having gospel music time. Especially when my wife played gospel music in the car and it had a nice beat. She would be kicking and bouncing around in there, walking on water and stuff. Thank God. So uh, the Lord was showing me, no, you're going to have to change how you're thinking. He, he started on me way back then. And our daughter's going on what age now? 25 already? Lord, quarter of a century. But I thank God he spoke to me through the picture of my daughter yet in utero. That you can't be making her come out into this uh, council of subordination. No. You're going to treat my daughter right. God got my heart right. Amen. Thank God. Thank God. And I couldn't see female elders. No. 
I've had discussions with older men in the church years ago, and we saw eye to eye on that. Why are they making these women elders? What in the world's going on? You know, this and that, and just had wind in my jaw, just mad. My God. But God got me right. Amen. Through his word. And when the spirit of God reveals the truth in the word, when you hear his voice, what? Harden not your heart. Uh, I didn't want to harden any longer. I said, Lord, I'm here at your wheel, your ceramic wheel. Go ahead and mold me and make me. Amen. So for those who embrace complementarian theology, uh, this reading of the Bible seems very compelling. Uh, Kevin Giles outlines how the Bible is interpreted by those who have put on this pair of spectacles. I had to take them spectacles off. Amen. In, in God's good creation before the fall, the woman was subordinated to the man. That's how they think. The woman's punishment for her sin, namely that the man would rule over her. See, introduced uh, nothing new, just the possibility that in a fallen world, this rule might be harsh. That's how they think. See, you heard that? Complementarians teach that, you know, the judge in the Bible named Deborah, the female one, they teach that Deborah, the judge and prophet, was not an authoritative leader like the male judges. See how they're doing? She was not like the male judges and prophets. Men and women could be prophets and prophesy, but prophecy is not an authoritative ministry like teaching. So they're setting it up so that when Paul said, you know, what he said about, you know, look like what he said about women, it would stand some ground. They emphasize that Jesus had female disciples. He always affirmed women and spoke, uh, you know, respectfully to them. They okay with that. But he said or did nothing that was against the principle of male headship. And uh, complementarians will assert that indeed in choosing 12 male apostles, Jesus affirmed this principle. Let's make sure we review complementarianism. What is it? It's a theological view. I didn't say uh, a theocracy. I didn't say theocratic. No, did I? I said theological. It's how men are thinking. They choose to think a certain way. It's a theological view in Christianity, in Judaism, and in Islam that men and women have uh, different complementary roles, and responsibilities in marriage. See, it's going to affect your marriage. You will walk three steps behind me, woman, with your head covered and keep your mouth closed until I say so. My God. So marriage is going to be like that. Family life, too. Nope. You don't do nothing unless, you know, everything. Don't breathe right until I say so. And in religious leadership, y'all could preach. No, y'all going to reach. Y'all not going to preach. See what I'm saying? That's the complementarian standard. And uh, they look at the women in the Bible as that's something that had to happen for a little bit of time. But the main deal is the men. You know, women had to be substitutionary for a little bit just to fill in the blank a little bit. But that's about it. That's how they think. They emphasize that Jesus uh, had some women, you know, doing things. Uh, but uh, he didn't say anything against the principle of male uh, leadership. They will assert that indeed, you know, about the 12 apostles, because 
my wife and I have had this talk. What about, you know, the 12 male apostles? It looks like that's what Jesus is doing. And it looks like that's what Paul is saying on his part. Explicitly, uh, he spoke of the man as head over the woman in 1 Corinthians 11.3. Uh, and later in that chapter said the covering of the woman's head symbolized her subjection to male authority. That's how the complementarians see it. Uh, her subordination is also indicated in that Paul says she was made, quote, from, end quote, man, verse 8, and for man, verse 9. And in Ephesians 5, uh, 22 through 24, Paul exhorts wives to be what? Subordinate, or in other words, submissive to who? Their, their own husbands, right? Because the husband is the what? The head of the wife. They use that, and they infer that in 1 Corinthians 14.34 and 1 Timothy 2.12, Paul tells women to watch, be silent in church. And, and, and uh, the Timothy text, 1 Timothy 2.12, specifically prohibits women from teaching, see, from teaching in church, because that's the authoritative ministry that directs how we're going to think. See, no, we don't want women right there. They're not headship, in the headship zone, no. We don't want them exercising uh, the authority that's rightfully exercised by male pastors, see. And I've said this months ago, maybe weeks ago, that God called me to where he called me. And my wife, being an assistant to me, it's, it's hurtful to the eyes of some complementarians out there because when they see our website, they will add some little comment, you know, you're against what the Bible is saying. But they're looking at the Bible from their own spectacles. And I don't accommodate such arguments because I look at them as vain babblings, and I don't want to go down that road. They are in a different uh, uh, frame of reference. They need to read a little more. So this prohibition is unambiguous and dedicated on weighty theology, according to their standard, which they use uh, as a case in point. It's the order of creation. That's what they say. Adam was created first, and this indicates that he was put in charge in the Garden of Eden, 1 Timothy 2.13. I think some of that spirit was in me when I first saw the sonogram of my daughter. And God kicked that right out of my mind right then. <laughs> Eve breached Adam's headship by acting independently of him in speaking with the serpent and eating of the forbidden tree. In 1 Timothy 2.14, they used that. In doing so, she committed the sin of role reversal. See, like when some used to say women wearing pants, they're abominating, you know? You see a lot of women these days in church wearing certain types of pants. Isn't that right? As long as they are not boom-boom cutters, they should be okay. I would call them something else if I wasn't standing up here. My God, my God. And now they're going worse. They're wearing those yoga pants. My God. And you can see every nook and cranny. My God. Is that right? Now, the apostolic parallel exhortations to wives and to slaves, because uh, the New Testament talks about wives and slaves, uh, both to be subordinate 
or obedient. They are to be contrasted, not compared. Uh, how to, that's how the complementarians see it. The exhortations to wives are grounded in the order of creation and are thus trans-temporal, which means transcending time. It happened in the garden, and it should stay ha- how it was right now. They also say it's transcultural, goes across cultures. But when the Bible is talking about slaves, it's not talking about slavery like that. And uh, so slavery was time-bound. Um, but racist complementarians think slavery should still go on. There are some that think that way. <laughs> um, there was a woman, an apostle in the ancient day named Junia. They say Junia was not an apostle like any of uh, her male counterparts, the men who were apostles. And the women Paul commends for the ministry were all subject to their male leadership. So I guess the female apostles would just get their coffee and their tea and stuff and little crumpets and things and clean the floor and wipe the toilets and things, uh, I guess. Uh, and yes, in Galatians 3.28, Paul speaks of the equality of the sexes in salvation, but this does not negate male-female role differentiation. That's how the complementarians think. This biblical case for the subordination of women is ultimately grounded in the life of God. You see how they're thinking? And eternity. It's going to always be, as 1 Corinthians 11.3 indicates. That's what they say. Just as the father is head over the son, so is the man head over the woman. The primary premise is that in creation, God gave to men and women differing roles. That's what they will always say. If you look on Uh, YouTube and all these videos out there, you will hear them saying that. These roles define what it means to be a man or a woman. Evangelical egalitarians, however, uh, should not be listened to, you know, the people on the other side. Uh, Preferably, they should be ignored. That's what they say. We're going to get to these people now. This couple that I'm showing on the screen, Andreas and Margaret Kostenberger, they are at the forefront of philosophical uh, brilliance as far as how they have written uh, many books um, which are at the forefront of this thinking. Um, They spell out the complementarian position, and um, the author I'm dealing with, Professor Giles, I'll call him, He focuses mainly on the book this couple wrote, God's Design for Men and Women, a Biblical Theological Survey. That's by Andreas and Margaret Kostenberger, this couple. Uh, So Giles' primary reference of the complementarian position is coming from them. He's had debates, you know, professional debates against them, and um, they act as if none of that happened. He selected their book because they give the most informed and best argued presentation of the complementarian case as it stood in uh, 2014 when they wrote it. So, and going back 50 years of development up to that point, Andreas Kostenberger is a professional New Testament scholar. See, that's why they listen to him. He's a first-class linguist. He knows about different languages, especially that of the New Testament and a much-published author. He is the most competent and able of the complementarian theologians. 
And his wife, Margaret, she's gifted too. She co-authored the book. It's a wonder why he allowed her to be a co-author. He should have called her a sub-author. <laughs> it's a complimentarian joke. Y'all a rough audience. Uh, Margaret, his gifted wife, who co-authors the book, is a specialist on contemporary feminism. Uh, so she knows about feminism. The book is prefaced by 18 you know, people that say something about the book before you start reading the first chapter. So in the preface, there were 18 respected evangelical leaders who enthusiastically commend the book, agreeing that it is the best account of the complementary position to be published so far. A Southern Baptist Convention theologian, and if you know about what's going on out there with uh, Sister Moore, who left that denomination because the Holy Ghost, you know, moved her out because they kept downing the women. When she was in one big meeting speaking, uh, they got so heated about this woman talking the way she was talking. They said she needs to be quiet and sit down. It sounds like some other subcultural meetings where certain bishops would say, sit down and, and take the mic out of your hand because they want certain protocols to stay put, you know. So they, they're going to be the watchdogs over that. But uh, there's a Southern Baptist Convention theologian named Russell Moore. Uh, in his commendation, he speaks of these Kostenbergers as the brilliant and respected Andreas and Margaret Kostenberger. For him to say that, that pushes them way up on the totem pole, if you will. Arthur Giles testifies that he chose to accept God's call as an old retired pastor to take on the challenging task of debating with the brilliant and well-informed Kostenbergers. Andreas knows Giles's work very well. Giles has challenged him in, in published works before, and they have corresponded many times. But Andreas never mentioned him or his writings in the book co-authored by his wife, Margaret. Hmm, interesting. He ignores the work of Giles and all of their previous debates. In this part of my sermon series, Church, I will make reference to how Giles has outlined where he actually agrees with some of the Kostenberger's work and where he has legitimate and crucial concerns about their work. You see, when you are walking and living truth, that's how you do. When I was a little boy, I knew how to pick out the meat and push the bones aside. You better learn how to do that. And if you're going to quote somebody, make sure you know the other faulty premises the people stand upon. You'll say, well, they said this and this and that good, but the rest of that, oh boy. That's just how deceitful false teachings are, though. It's mostly true. And that's dangerous. Mostly true. I didn't say all the way true. Isn't that something? But people will take that sloppiness and go on down with it and belch on into oblivion, eating in their merry way. It seems like people just will not listen. And the truth is right there. But it's not my responsibility to make them listen. I just pre present truth. Amen. As I've been doing as a pastor, sometimes I go home crying to God, you know, take it to the Lord in prayer. Yes, Lord. But let's look at what these Kostenbergers are doing. 
See, the Kostenbergers and Giles agree perfectly on the following thing of how you should exegete. Exegesis is when you're taking truth out of the word and how you're looking at the word, leaving it as is. There's a certain way you got to deal with theology. Uh, so the alternative positions are alternative theologies. To understand the Kostenbergers and the writings of Giles, it must be recognized they are both writing theology. Giles is writing theology too. Their alternative positions can be briefly and succinctly stated, but each is grounded on the exegesis of a limited number of texts integrated into a holistic framework. They do not differ simply on their interpretation of a few texts. Theology is, is, is not the same as exegesis or biblical theology. Exegesis has as its goal to give the historical meaning of text in their literary context. And biblical theology has as its goal to give the historical meaning of what is said in the Bible or parts of the Bible in a holistic way. Thank God. So we're going to look at the fact that the Kostenbergers and Giles are both going to agree that you have to look at the Bible a certain way. There are certain rules to abide by. Uh, so theology, in contrast, seeks to address the contemporary world of the theologian. That's what we're looking at, the world around us and what's going on in it. The theologian's charter now is to tell the church of their age what should be believed. I know God gave me that charge. But I'm looking at these two, Kostenbergers and, and, and Professor Giles. Both predicate their work on the exegesis of the text that speak on the man and woman relationship. Both seek to find coherence in the diverse comments in Scripture on this matter, and both draw inferences as to how what is said in Scripture applies to the church today. In other words, both are writing theology. Egalitarians should admit that what is said on women in Scripture is complex. There's no easy answer all the time. And they should recognize their task is to uh, connect the dots in a way that is both coherent and consistent. That's what uh, the Kostenbergers said. And they should believe not everything said in the Bible has equal weight. It is from this point on that the schools of thought go in diametrically opposed ways. So Giles was like, yeah, I agree with that. We got to connect all the dots and I know everything in the Bible doesn't have equal weight. Sometimes we will cherry pick and we will misconstrue what God said. We can't act like uh, our language today is what God was saying then. No, <laughs> we got to really dig in and see what he's really saying for real. So for complementarians, the coherent theme of what is said in Scripture on the man and woman relationship is revealed to them solely in Genesis, the second chapter. They say God has given leadership to men and that the Old Testament and Jesus and Paul and the other apostles all affirm this principle. They say that this is what Christians should believe today. On this basis, complementarians teach that God is pleased when women accept their creation prescribed subordinate role in the home, in the church, and the world worldwide. 
And in stark contrast for egalitarians, um, the coherent theme of what is said in Scripture is revealed in Genesis 1 and 2, not just 2, but 1 and 2, which teach the same truth in different ways. Man and woman, before the fall, have the same status, same dignity, and leadership abilities, although one is man and one is woman. The role of the man over the woman is entirely a consequence of the fall. From Genesis 4 onward, the whole biblical story is set in this fallen world where men seek to rule over women the way they see fit. But God keeps raising up women leaders to remind his people this is not the creation ideal. Jesus emphatically affirms the creation given substantial equality of the two genders. On this basis, all egalitarian evangelicals believe that God is pleased when we recognize and affirm that men and women are of the same status, dignity, and leadership potential, and are therefore uh, accorded equality in the home, equality in the church, and equality in the world. Amen. Thank God. Our task in comparing and contrasting the, the two schools of thought is to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to the church. What is the eternal mindset of God? Which theological teaching accurately uh, reflects what Scripture is teaching as a whole? Not cherry-picking, but as a whole. There is no middle ground. Out of eight theological positions, I'm going to give you four of them, and then we're done. So the theological positions must adhere strictly to the following criteria, and I will give you four out of eight. We'll continue next week with the rest of them, and there's some more meat to share, which can't all be given in one sitting. Uh, so number one, you got to think like this when you are dealing with theology. Good theology, I didn't say bad, I said what? Good theology uh, accurately captures what the scriptures say on the important texts that speak to the issue in question. This um, especially pertains to those scriptures in the beginning when the fall happened in Genesis chapters 1 through 3, when Paul starts talking in the epistles uh, in 1 Corinthians 11 and chapter 14 in Galatians, the third chapter, and 1 Timothy, the second chapter. Uh, so that's number one. Number two, good theology explains how what is said in various texts can be read to speak with one voice on the question in discussion. Who, in the Kostenberger's words, connects the dots in a way that is both coherent and consistent? We have to do that. But the complementarians don't seemingly do that, which brings us to number three. Good theology draws inferences that follow the trajectories of Scripture itself implies. Theologians, in other words, theologians must make inferences or deductions. You know, when you have deductive reasoning, uh, if God said that, then this other thing must be true, you know. They have, they have to answer questions that arise after the canon is closed because no other scriptures can be added, can they? No. But there are questions that remain because of our modern day. Questions in some cases uh, the scriptures do not seem to anticipate, but God is ready. You don't catch God, God off guard. Amen. 
instead of a, a, a laying, uh, instead of laying a, a theological foundation of surface structure only, based solely on how there was an abundance of men in leadership in history, one should follow the implicit doctrine of how Jesus himself affirms and implies, namely, that gender quality is the God-given ideal as set by the landmark premise of Genesis, the first chapter, verses 27 and 28. So God created who? who? Human beings. In what? His image. In the image of God, he created them. He created both what? Male and female. Why? Because he's going to tell you why they had to be like that. Because of reproduction. God blessed them and said, have many children and grow in number. Fill the earth and be its master. Who is he talking to? Both of them. Rule over the fish, both of y'all, in the sea and over the birds in the sky, all both of you, and over every living thing that moves on the earth, both of you. Notice who is ruling what. Is man ruling over woman? Or is man and woman ruling over all the stuff? Thank God. Which brings us to number four, and we're done. Number four, good theology clarifies issues. What is being articulated is not in doubt. Unfortunately, complementarian theology fails badly on this. It majors on code words, which are kind of shadowy. And they are very ambiguous and vague. There's code words that confuse what is really being stated. Two examples of this are seen in the pervasive use of the word role. What is your role, women? Right? To be subordinate. And if any of you speak up and try to teach, I'm going to say you're an insubordinate. You know, my God, if I was complementarian. So they like using the word role. You know, that tends to be a moot point because they could change what your role is based on their taste. See, they, so they, they use uh, this word role to speak of fixed power relations and the self-designated name they give themselves, complementarian. Check that out. We all should believe the sexes are complementary, should we not? But why don't they name the position the hierarchical view of the sexes, because they give hierarchy one over the other. So that ends number four. We have four more to go, and I will share those in part two of this message. But take this home. Don't forget, in this study, we will continue to think about the historical and cultural, what happened in time and the cultures developed. Uh, the context of those two factors in which biblical passages were set. Certain things happened in the scriptures, and God laid down his word in the midst of it. Amen. This context is very different to what we know in the 21st century. The historical and cultural construct of male headship is not to be interpreted as freedom to uh, subject women to eternal subordination. That's not what it's for, my God. And to also push inequality. The, the subordination of women was not a creation-given construct. 
And the Bible should not be interpreted in that faulty doctrine. Don't forget that. The Bible chronicles everything that happened because of how men saw things. There were killings in the Bible that shouldn't have happened. There were degenerate men, men of Belial, they were called, from the tribe of Benjamin. And this weary traveler went through there, and he couldn't find proper lodging. He found something while it was starting to get dark, and the men started pounding on the door. Come out. We saw a new man coming. Oh, a new, new blood, new flesh to try out. And what did he do? Take my concubine. See how women are thought of? Just a sex object. They harmed that woman all night long and left her for dead on the porch. And how did he tell the others? Mutilate her, dismember her, and send 12 parts out to the 12 tribes to let them know what malady had occurred in the land. My God, look at how women were treated. Did God intend for that to happen? No. That's because of sin in the world and how people think in their sinful mentalities. That has nothing to do with God. Men chose that way. The devil gave a deceitful teaching, and we just swallowed it, hook, line, and stinker. And we like the name God as the villain. But the devil is the villain, and so are we who follow the deceitful teachings of the devil. Uh, we know that hell was prepared for the devil and his fallen angels, and anyone who wants to be the disciple of Satan himself. But we can choose an alternate route, amen? God does not want women looked at the way we may look at women against God's will. We're the ones who are insubordinate. Amen. The Bible chronicles the effects of how sin uh, viciously attacks women. My God. It chronicles the effects of the malady of sin and reveals the better way, the eternal way, the perfect way that our loving Lord God, Jesus Christ, the creator of all, and Lord of all intended. And may this love transform us all. Amen. And make us agents of wholesome teaching and healing. This church should be a teaching post, a healing post. Amen. We want healing to happen in the culture. We want right teaching to happen in the culture. And I see forums God's going to form. Amen. And we could have discussions to deconstruct the malady of what uh, subcultures exist in ecclesiastical circles today. How women are made to be subject to the whims of a sinful-minded, male-dominated structure. My God, God didn't intend for it to be that way. You can walk alongside me, my sisters, and we could, amen, defeat the devil together, amen. Two could put 10,000 to flight, male and female, both anointed by God to do damage to the devil's camp. Hallelujah. We thank you, Lord, for this teaching. We thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Bless our minds to grow. Help us to unlearn the things we shouldn't have learned. Help us to be educated in the things that we should have been educated with years ago. Help us to grow in the majestic grace of God, the omnipotent grace of God, the transforming grace of God. We thank you, and we give you the glory. We give you the honor. We love you, Lord. Hey, hallelujah. Guide us, O thou great Jehovah, and may there be a revival. May it begin right here in the realm. We thank you, Lord.
Help us to lead the way and go forth in the blessing of God and be blessed. Hallelujah. Thank God. We of the realm of Agape Christian Church pray that the Holy Word of God has richly blessed your soul. To send prayer requests, use the contacts page of our website, www.roagape.org. We need your continued prayers and financial support to maintain this ministry. You can also find a secure means of donating on our website. God bless you. Thank you.